All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We are beginning today a series of lessons from the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ concerning the very needed and very necessary doctrine of prayer. Prayer. There has been much written throughout the centuries by both Christian and non-Christian alike about the subject of prayer. It is probably one of the most written about doctrines in all of Scripture, at least in a secular sense. Even when I went to seminary, I took an entire 16-week course on the subject of prayer. And I find it interesting as we study the Gospel of Luke and as we think about the reality of Scripture and the revelation of God as it goes on from Genesis to Revelation, I find it interesting as we transition, particularly here in this Gospel, as Jesus is beginning to do more teaching than He is performing of miracles and signs that would authenticate the reality of who He is as the God-man. So that from Luke chapter 11 all the way to chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus is in this mode of teaching. The day He enters into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, from this point on He has entered this mode of doing more and more personal teaching with the disciples. Not simply just the twelve, but but really with those who are following him. And he's teaching the apostles and, and therefore then these other disciples also truths about the kingdom, truths about being a follower of his and what that is to entail. And he begins with this truth about prayer. And I think as we go through this, you'll find that it's not what you might think it is. God has been revealing His very nature and character to us from the very beginning. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, as He created the world, we see His character, His nature, His attributes on display by just doing the very things He did in creating all that is. And here we are with Jesus Christ beginning the realities of what it is to live in this kingdom of His as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers, followers of His, and He begins with Luke chapter 11, and He begins with prayer. And this is what we find here in the first 13 verses of this chapter. Principles for how to pray. Specifically, we find that here in verses 1 through 4, but that is just part of the larger section which takes us down all the way to verse 13. And the words recorded here by Luke in verses 1 through 4 are familiar to us. We have a tendency when things are familiar to to, uh, really not listen as carefully, not think as carefully about these things. When I first approached this text, I, I... I had thought like that. I was thinking this is something that we all know about and it's familiar to us. In fact, that's so familiar 
that many have even misunderstood these words to be a prescribed pattern for prayer. In other words, as if this is some kind of mantra, some kind of uh, repeated reality in prayer that we are to be doing rather than it being the principles to guide our prayer. And I hope we can show that over today in the next few times that we are together. Let me just read this text for us beginning here in Luke chapter 11. And I just want to spend our time in the first four verses. So I'll I'll read all 13 verses, but that's where we'll spend our time this morning. Luke writes for us, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we, also, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from the inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children are in and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, as I said, these words are recognizable to the Christian and even to the pagan. If not for the simple reason that these very words have been publicly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Anyone who says the Lord's Prayer or speaks of the Lord's Prayer, these words immediately come to our minds, particularly the first few words of this prayer, even though it should be better and could be better referred to as the Lord's principles for prayer. Luke tells us that this is Jesus' teaching about prayer to his disciples. That's what it says here in verse 1. One of his disciples says to him, we don't know who this disciple was. We, we certainly don't know if it was one of the 
12 apostles that Jesus had called out some time ago, but it was one of those who were following him, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then, of course, Jesus answers that very question, that inquiry with what we have here. And that question that he asks is not so strange to any of us when we think about learning how to pray, because this is what a disciple's teacher or a disciple of a teacher would have done, particularly in the ancient times when Jesus was on the face of the earth. Often those teachers would have had certain prayers, certain things they would say, certain lists of prayers that their disciples would want to know, and then they would go on repeating those prayers. It seems that even John the Baptist had taught his disciples in similar kind of way, because the question here is under that vein. Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples to pray. So it seems as if some of Jesus' followers wanted him to give them some kind of prayer that they could recite, that they could pray, something that, that he would say so that they could go on repeating it. And in, in a way, Jesus honors that request for prayer, but not in the way of giving something that should be repeated over and over again as if it's some kind of mantra. You say, why do, why do you say that? I mean, why, why are people doing that? How come it seems as if that's what people do with this? Why do I say that? Because if this is the words of Jesus that we are to be repeating as if it is some kind of prayer, that it is the Lord's prayer and it is a Lord's prayer that we ought to be praying because Jesus prayed this, we are confused. Why? Because there are words in this prayer that Jesus would never pray. There are words here whereby we are told, as Jesus is teaching, to ask for forgiveness. To go to God with a heart that understands our sinfulness. Jesus would never pray that way. He never needed to pray that way. He's perfect in every way. And so mistakenly, so many repeated as if it's some kind of ritual prayer without understanding in any kind of way that our Lord would never pray for forgiveness. But with all of that said, we certainly can still acknowledge, can we not, that the principles included here are absolutely relevant to every true disciple of Christ. In other words, every Christian who claims to have a seriousness in their relationship with God will gladly hear these and gladly implement these principles into their prayer life. Now, just so that we are clear in our own thinking, I, I always want to make sure that we're not going down roads in our minds that we ought not go down. We need to be clear in our thinking. We need to understand that this is the second time, at least, that these instructions are included in the four Gospels. 
This is not the Sermon on the Mount sermon, but these words are included in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 through 15. Luke's account here is similar in its content, but it is not fully the same in wording. That gives another kind of trouble to those who say this is the Lord's Prayer and how we ought to be praying it. It seems to me that if this is the Lord's Prayer and the longer one in Matthew would be the full prayer, then why wouldn't Luke write all of that if we are to be repeating it? So the wording is not the same, and I don't want to get into all the detailed comparison of the two this morning, but suffice it to say that when you put them side by side, you'll notice the differences. However, even though there are differences to those two in wording, the structure of prayer is the same. And that is, I believe, its intent. This is an intended teaching of Jesus Christ in how prayer is structured. Both of the prayers, both in Matthew and here, begin with being centered on God. This is where prayer begins. It begins being centered on God. In other words, both these prayers Uh, accountings that we have include the reality where they speak about the name of God and the kingdom of God. And then the second part is more focused on man. Think about that in our own prayer lives when we think about praying where our focus is to be. Jesus has it in his time of teaching about prayer that our focus is to be, first of all, centered on God, and then secondly, centered on man. It speaks here about our daily provisional need and our need for forgiveness of sins and our temptations, the things by which we are tempted to sin. And so it is the structure that drives this prayer. It is the structure that drives the principles that are taught here. It begins vertically. It begins with this focus on God and it ends horizontally with its dealing with men. It's surprisingly like the law, the Ten Commandments, which begin vertically and and deal with our relationship with God. And out of that relationship with God, then we have this horizontal reality whereby we deal with mankind. Love the Lord God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. This is the idea. This is the structure that ought to inform us. This is the structure that ought to shape our prayer lives. As Christians, we are to exalt God and then request on behalf of men. So let's begin to just unfold this together for us as we look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 2, when you pray, say, Father. Stop right there. Can't get a whole lot farther than that one word as we begin. Vertical structure number one, 
Exalt God as Father. Recognize your relationship with God. When you pray, address God in that sense. Address God as Father. We have to understand something that this may not be so shocking a principle to us right here today. That may not be stunning to us when we talk to God, when we know and therefore acknowledge that He is Father. That is not so shocking to us as Christians. Not so profound to us. We pray ultimately to God the Father. Now think about that. As you think about prayer, think about structure. You do not pray to a saint. You do not pray to another man. You do not pray to some kind of icon and some kind of thing that you have in your yard or some other kind of statue around the house. You do not do that. You pray to God. You pray to the Father. To pray to some other saint, to pray to some other person called a saint, or whatever you want to say. Pray to one who they say in Catholicism to Mary because she's the mother of God, as they say. That blasphemes God. God is blasphemed, and to deny His sovereignty is to blaspheme Him. And so each and every day, many people bow, quote-unquote, to worship God, and all they are doing is blaspheming God because they're praying to the foolishness of mankind. And however, as unshocking as it might be to our ears as Christians to say we pray to the Father, it would have been shocking to the ears of those sitting at Jesus' feet. When someone came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray like John had taught his disciples to pray, and the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is this, when you pray, you say, Father. That would have shocked them to no end. Why? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the writers of the Old Testament, when you look at the Old Testament at large, every Jew believed in the fatherhood of God. We're not saying that they didn't understand and believe in the fatherhood of God, but what was meant by that was that God was the sovereign creator of the whole world overall, everything that was ever created. In other words, He was the one in whom they owed their very existence. But that relationship was distant it was distance. It wasn't personal. There wasn't a personal relationship with God one-on-one. -on -one. In fact, you might be interested to know that while all of the occurrences in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, over a thousand where the word Father is used, only 20 times in the entire Old Testament altogether is it ever referred to as our Father and of all the 20 times where our Father, that little phrase is used even in the Old Testament, even within those times, the, the tone within those passages, only a very few, if a couple, carry the personal flavor that He is the Father of a nation, not even of a person. 
Isaiah speaks of God as being our father, the father of our people, our nation. In other words, it is used of God as the father of a people, but not of some individual. Not even the prophets address God that way. Not even Abraham speaks of God with the personal term, my father. And so the whole idea of distance from God was in the hearts of the Jews. And they were very careful, very fastidious about never even saying the covenant name of God. You would never do that as a Jew. But when Jesus comes, the way He addresses God is only with the term Father. Jesus never addresses God the Father in any other kind of way except with the term Father. In fact, there isn't one prayer of Jesus's where He doesn't speak of God as Father. And so you have to think about it. You have to put yourself in the midst of this. No one in the entirety of Judaism prayed like Jesus prayed. No one. And so when He teaches us to pray, He is saying, don't pray like others. Don't pray like other people. Don't forget that God is your Father. God is your Father and address Him as such. Now think about that because there are implications with that, aren't there? There are implications when we think about God and address God and embrace that reality that God is our Father. Since God is our Father, then we can approach God, what? Without fear, can't we? We go to God. We we approach Him without fear. You you travel the globe. You go to pagan cultures all over the world and and you see the man-made idols of these pagan religions sitting there and temples built around them and people live in fear of that God. They live in fear of this man-made thing that they have placed there. They even try to appease this God for fear of retaliation against them if they do not. There's no closeness. There's no close reality. No close relationship. And certainly there could never be a close relationship or it is simply just molten metal and wood and stone and garbage, man-made issues. But one of the joys of being in the family of the true and living God is that we are His children. So that He, as our Father, dispels any fear that we might have in coming to Him. No need to fear God. No need for us to have a sense in which we are cowering with a shuddering fear before God. Certainly the Bible says we ought to have a fear of God in our hearts, but that is a reverent awe for who He is. In fact, the term used here is the Greek word pater, which simply means father. Father, the one who is the paternal one, right? That's our word, paternity. We get it. But the Aramaic term is probably what Jesus spoke here, and that is the word Abba. Abba. It's exactly what Romans 8 verse 15 says. 
that as Christians, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So in prayer, we are speaking with affection. We are speaking with our Father, not fear. And so this principle of fatherhood, the fatherhood of God, ought to, to be in our hearts when we pray. It, it dispels fear. But it also, secondly, it directs our hope, doesn't it? I mean, when we contemplate the reality of who God is in relationship to us by means of our union with Jesus Christ, by means of having faith in Jesus Christ, it, it directs our hope. Why? Because we live in a world where hostility is around every corner. I mean, you can't turn on the news today, and I don't care if there's a war or not, you can't turn on the news where hostility isn't the front page line. Our world is falling apart at the seams. But God is our Father. And He will take care of our future. If earthly fathers do what they can to help their own families, as verse 11 says here that I read at the beginning, how much more will God protect and help us? So knowing that He is our Father dispels our fear. It directs our hope. And thirdly, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, it also discourages loneliness. It discourages loneliness. You say, how so? Well, we might be rejected by friends and family. We might have people turn on us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We might lose our jobs. We might be hated by the world. They may come and try to take us away and even arrest us. But we know our Father in Heaven will never leave us. He's our Father. And therefore, knowing that He is our Father discourages loneliness. doesn't matter how much you're by yourself. You're never alone as a Christian. Why? Because God is there with you. So it dispels fear, it directs our hope, it discourages loneliness, but fourthly, it also, because God is our Father, selfishness is defeated. Selfishness is defeated. You say, well, how so? Well, the recording of this prayer in Matthew's Gospel and other versions say that Familiar pronoun with father. It includes the pronoun. Here in Luke's gospel, it doesn't have the pronoun with it, but the other ones do. And that other pronoun is the one I've been saying all along. It's our father. Our is a plural pronoun. The implication is that we are part of a family. He is our father. In other words, it's not just us. And therefore, because it's not just us, when we pray, we ought to pray without selfishness. We ought not pray selfishly. We ought to be praying for others, praying for all the saints. In fact, you look at the New Testament in each and every book that were written by the apostles, it is included that we are the children of God, our Father. 
The apostles got it. They understood the principle. They brought it into the reality of saying that, that God is, in fact, that. He is our Father. And there's one more implication, I think. There's probably others, but just one more for, for us here before we move on. Knowing God is our Father, it directs obedience. It directs our obedience. Jesus is the true Son of God. And Jesus came to what? Do the will of the Father who sent Him. How much more should we have that to be our desire? That is simply to say, since God is our Father, then it is imperative that we obey Him. He's our Father. Because we have relationship with Him, we obey Him. The Scriptures clearly teach if we love Him, we will what? Keep His commandments. Do what God says. And so Jesus says, pray in this way. First, pray acknowledging that God is your Father. He is not distant from you. He is not some kind of distant genie waiting in the wings to be appeased. He is your Father. He loves you. He cares for you. He desires your best. So do not fear. Do not feel lonely. Do not think only of yourself. Think of others. Rest in hope and obey Him. We have a new relationship. It's been formed through Jesus Christ with God the Father in which we are now His children. He is not distant from us. And so we can cry out like Romans says, Abba, Father. Abba is that intimate term. It's, it's that term, whatever you called your earthly father in that intimate moment. You didn't always just say father in this formal sense. You, you called him dad. My grandkids call me Papa. Why? Because it's an intimate term that is on their heart in reference to me in relationship with them. We are to exalt God in that way. He is our Papa. They would have been shocked at that. You mean, you mean I can go to God and talk to Him that way? Yes. Yes, you can. And from the shock of that reality that God is their Father, Jesus says, secondly, pray in exaltation of His name. Father, hallowed be Your name. I had to sit back in my chair reading this and just let it pour over me like like molasses or like like good caramel on a nice piece of cake, right? Names are an interesting reality. It's an interesting study to study the meaning of names. For many today, much like you and I probably here in this room, our names have little to do with our very character, who we are. They have more to do with really the likability of a name, maybe the fact that in your history of your own growing up years, you had someone named a certain way and you would never name your children that way. It's like even the name Judas in the Bible. There's not many kids named Judas. Why? Because the Bible has that reality that Judas was the one who betrayed Christ. Who wants to have that name?
maybe we were named because we wanted someone was in our family that was to be honored, maybe a father or an uncle or whatever it was, or a mother or an aunt. But names do have meanings. They have meanings. When I was young, my father told my brothers and I what our names meant. My parents weren't saved when we were born. They named us all with rhyming names. Some of you know my brother's names. They all rhyme. It had no meaning other than the fact that it was a great joke for us growing up. But it was interesting when my father began to tell us what our names meant because he didn't know what they meant at at the initial outset of our life because those meanings had nothing to do with him. He was saved when I, I was just a child. He was 36. And he became interested in the reality of the meaning of names because he began to read the scriptures and know more about the scriptures. And, and so he researched and found the meaning of our names as young boys. And he later gave them to us and told us about them because he wanted us to all sense this special reality of relationship with him. And I'm not going to tell you what my name meant. If you want to know, you can come up to me later. It's not a bad thing. I just think you'd laugh. You'd say, no, that's not true of you. That's probably what you'll say. But my point is that all names have meaning. All names have meaning. And we are told to remember this about God in our prayers with God. We're told to remember His name. His name is to be hallowed, it says. Hallowed be your name. This is an imperative. It's a command. Hallowed be the name. Hallowed is not a common word we use today. It just simply means to be set apart. To set apart or, or to treat as holy. The word is hagiadzo. Hagiadzo. It's where we get the word for holy. Holy. In other words, as we pray, we are to consider God Consider our Father, the one who is close with us in this relationship. We are to consider Him with reverence because He is holy. He is a holy God. In fact, we are to pray that His name would be considered holy among not only us, but others. And again, as we think about it, when we pray to God and we are acknowledging God with an attitude and words that are requesting and praying that He would be held in reverent high esteem by us and by others, that has implications, does it not? I mean, when we are acknowledging God with an attitude and with words, requesting and praying that He would be given the reverence that His character and nature deserve, and His character and nature actually demand, isn't that very thought, isn't that very prayer boiling up in our hearts and resulting in our mouth speaking a light shining really upon our own hearts and our own lives as we contemplate our own lives and how we may or may not be reverencing the name of God. When we say to God, hallowed be your name, are we thinking of ourselves and how it may or may not be hallowed by us? It ought to. 
If I'm requesting that His name be honored, is His name be held as holy, that it be held with honor, then shouldn't the first place to see the answer to that prayer be in the outpouring of reverence for Him in my own life? Shouldn't that be the first thing that is on my heart? How many areas, beloved, how many ways, how many things, how many words spoken, how many actions and thoughts taken that show others that I do not hallow the name of God? So what's the principle? The principle is to come to God in our prayer with a heart that is saying and meaning, God, I am praying, I am pleading that, that your fatherhood and that your name be set apart in the eyes and the hearts of men for what it is, that it is holy, holy, holy. And I'm praying, Lord, that that start with me. Here's how Jesus prayed. John 17, verse 25 and 26. Here's what Jesus said. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. How did Jesus make his known, his the name of the Father known to the disciples? By reflecting the very character and nature of God to them. By obedience to the will of the Father each and every day. They saw Jesus Christ not only in words, but in deeds, honoring and hallowing the Father's name by how He lived, what He did, what He said. That's the reverence for the name of God that is to be held in the hearts of His children. And actually, when we pray with that on our minds, we are praying that the reverence of God would be seen in us, are we not? How is the reverence of God seen in our lives? How is God's name hallowed by us? Is it not by how we talk and how we walk as Christians. We studied the book of Ephesians in our evening service, and last time we were together, we talked about alienation and reconciliation. Beloved, the way the world sees what unity is to look like is when the church is a church of reconciliation. That only happens when we are hallowing the name of God in our life. Since God is our Father, and His name is to be hallowed, then think about it. Think about it. His name should never be misused by us in public or in private. I wonder how often the name of God has been blasphemed by others simply because of a careless word or a sinful action. 
God's name is to be hallowed. Not just in our mouths, but in our actions. How we live. Are we showing in our actions that we actually honor Him for who He is as our Father? Who is our life representing? Do our actions show sweetness of our relationship with the Father, whereby we have a loyalty to Him that is shown by how we live? That's how we ought to be praying. And therefore, it ought to be seen in us first. So vertically, we pray to God the Father. He is our Father, and our desire is that His name be honored and respected. The, the third thing is this, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. The establishment of the kingdom of God is to be the centerpiece principle, if you will, of our prayer life. The coming of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? Well, we could spend a month of Sundays, if not more, talking about that. But the word is simple. It just means reign. It just means rule. The rule of God. So it means, when referring to God, it means the complete sovereign reign or the complete sovereign rule of God in all things. And so what is the principle here? Well, the principle is just that. It is rule and submission. Because if God is ruling in all things, then all things are submitting to God. In other words, when we pray, we are to be praying for God's rule to take place in all things and thereby submission come about to His rule. And that is to be the centerpiece, if you will, of our prayer. That God's sovereign reign would be the one thing ruling all things. Not simply universally. Certainly God has a, a universal reality by way of His sovereignty. He is sovereignly ruling over all things. Nothing happens that God does not allow. That's what we're saying when I say that. But also God's rule, our desire is that God would have His rule in a practical sense. Right here and right now. In the hearts of all men. Look around our world, there have always been worldly powers in world's, the world's history that have come and gone. Right? God in His sovereignty raises one up and removes another. All done by His sovereign hand. In fact, Acts chapter 17 says that. His rule by Himself determines their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 17. And so while there are kingdoms that come and go by God's design, and while He is mitigating the spiritual kingdom in the hearts of His people today, that doesn't negate in any way a future kingdom to come. Some say, oh, we don't have to worry about the kingdom to come. It's all this stuff in the Bible. Yeah, it doesn't really mean that. What it means is God's ruling in the hearts of His people today, and so He's ruling His kingdom. The kingdom's already about. Well, that's not what the Bible reflects. Jesus said in the upper room on the night of His betrayal, Truly, truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
That is to say that there is actually an earthly kingdom to come which God the Son will reign. We are not in that kingdom now. Nor has that kingdom already passed us by as if it was something of the past. It is to come. Currently, the kingdom of God is being mitigated spiritually as those who know Jesus Christ. Christ is ruling in the hearts of His own people from glory. But Scripture clearly declares that there is coming a day when He will rule from the earth. In fact, I believe in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount that this is exactly why He says right after the phrase your kingdom come, it also says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, those who are part of God's spiritual kingdom now have a desire for God's kingdom to rule all aspects of life just as it is always done in heaven. And so when we pray about the kingdom, there are implications, aren't there? Implications for Him being our Father. Implications for the reality that we hallow His name. Well, there's just implications also when we pray, Your kingdom come. There are personal implications for us as we pray that. Because while my own flesh desires to seek to serve me, I'm part of something outside of me. I'm part of something that's bigger than me. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And so my desires, the desire of my will, is, needs to be the desire of God's will. It needs to be obedience to see His rule in all things. And so if I'm going to pray, hallowed be your name, and I'm going to think about my own life and the ways in which God's name may not be hallowed by me and my words and my actions, then I better be thinking of the second thing, let your kingdom come or your kingdom is to come. It's another command, let that come. And if I'm thinking about my own life, would that not include repentance? To turn from self to God? Here's what Jesus said, repent, why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom rule. So to pray for the kingdom of God to come implies that I desire that reflection to be a reality in my own life. And so it also implies a commitment. A commitment to kingdom living. Remember, what Jesus said back in chapter 9, talking to those who say, I'll follow you, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. Remember that? Chapter 9, verse 62. Remember what Jesus said? No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit, what? For the kingdom of God. Kingdom living. And so to pray your kingdom come is to pray that my heart would be committed to following him. And that means that my life's pursuits are to be God's desires. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
You know what that implies? It, it implies at the very least, it implies more than this, but it implies at the very least you cannot be an isolated Christian. You can't be an isolated Christian. Why? Because seeking His kingdom and His righteousness means it's not just about you. You want His kingdom everywhere. You want His righteousness to be seen everywhere. In other words, we can't pray in this way. We can't be thinking of this, these principles and go away unwilling and unthoughtfully living for self. That's the idea. Jesus has just come off that reality about living for Him, about, about seeking the right things. Remember the conversation He had with Mary and Martha? Or with Martha particularly? I'm not going to take these things away, but she wants to sit at my feet. She's, she's learning how to, to live. She, she sees that as the most important thing, to live this kingdom life. And here Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray this way. Why? Because it, it, it just is like a, a scalpel that opens up your own heart. You thought you were praying for other things. No. You're asking God to do a diagnosis on you. God, really examine me. You can't pray that way and live for yourself. To pray your kingdom come and it not be a reflection of our pursuits in life is to lie. To be like those in 1 John, truth not being in us. Jesus says, when you pray, acknowledge God as your Father. There's that intimate closeness and relationship of the one who created you and drew you into his family. Acknowledge that, that intimate relationship with the one who, who has made you. And in that desire for his character, his nature to be a reflection in your life, and pray that the kingdom life lived by you now in this life, would come to this earth quickly. That it would be everywhere. Because God is supreme. He is to be honored. Hallowed. Acknowledging God as our Father carries with it profound implications for living, doesn't it? We live without fear. We can live selflessly because we have Jesus Christ and a relationship with God the Father. We can have eternal hope. So our lives must and can reflect the honor that is due His name. What a privilege we have to hallow the name of God. To reflect His name, the reverence for His name to a world that does not even want to have anything to do with Him. That's a privilege of ours. And as we live obediently to Him, the world sees it. The world looks at us and they might call us weirdos, Jesus freaks, oddballs, whatever it is they might call us. But they see that and what they see is that God is not just ruler but He is the one who's to be revered above all things. And that opens the door for the Gospel. That opens the door for others to hear the good news that when they believed, 
they will know God as their father. And so it brings lost to the kingdom. Those who long for the final rule of Christ to come. I challenge you to think about this. Is this the Lord's Prayer? No. No. It's our prayer. It's the prayer of all His children. This prayer carries weight as we're living repentive lives following after the Father's will. And so any prayer ought to be structured vertically first. Pleading Godward. And then it moves horizontally. And that's where we begin in verse 3. Too much for today. Too much for today. You might be even saying, man, I didn't think all that was there in verse 2. Enough for us though, isn't it? Enough. Well, we'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for you are our Father. Not distant, not far away, right here in our midst, with us, hearing every word, knowing every thought and deed. Your word given to us divides down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And Lord, as we think of these truths, these principles, the structure, Lord, may May it really be a shining light on our own hearts and how we are living for you in that way. Do we really live as if you are our Father? Does our lives reflect the reality of your hallowedness? Who you are in your very nature and character that you are to be respected and honored above all things in every way? And it is our desire that your kingdom would come not simply in our own thoughts, but as it's reflected in our life, that it would be seen everywhere in that way. Ah, we desire for Christ. Lord, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who teaches us how to pray, not just with words, but with his life. Thank you that he made you known and that we can live for you as he's taught us. Lord, continue to shape us, mold us, challenge us in order that we might reflect Jesus Christ in your very nature and character and what you deserve and the praise you deserve to all around us. That you would receive the glory and we would be eclipsed by it. All because you have chosen us to be in your family. We praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen.